ahead and as the kids are uh, exiting, we're going to jump into our lesson for this morning. Of course, I'm Joe Collins and I want to welcome you to See Me Church. Now, last time we were here, we heard from the brothers Popic, Kyle and Logan. Kyle did a great job leading us in our time of worship. We, we spent some time, as we frequently do throughout the year, in just prayerful worship. Minimize the singing and we just focus on the praying. And then his brother Logan came up and did a great job preaching God's word and reminding us that we may only see a little bit of the road that's in front of us, but God sees the whole map. He sees the whole uh, outline of the city and all the streets. And because of that, we can put our trust into him. So today, I'm going to be bringing us back now to this ongoing series that I've been doing for several months now, uh, and it's on the book of Jeremiah. It's called Jeremiah, the Branch of an Almond Tree, and, and in this series, we've been focusing on a theme, and that theme has been the cringeworthy things that God made Jeremiah do. If you don't know by now, I like to spend time in God's Word and just staying in one, uh, one part of it. I don't like to skip around much if I can help it, and so I really love just ongoing, deep stuff of a book or a subject or a character or whatever the case may be. And, and so for several months now, we've been doing this, this theme, Jeremiah, this series and this theme. And within that uh, series, we've been focusing on cringeworthy things. If you don't know the story of God's people, but uh, I'll tell you briefly, God at different times in their history rose up people he called prophets. And these prophets were generally pretty out there kind of people. They were the crazies of their day. And God often made prophets do cringeworthy things. I even one time tried to give you a little example of that when we talked about Jeremiah, he had to wear a yoke and he had to go to a very important meeting wearing a yoke and you would just think that is embarrassing. So I tried to make a little homemade yoke and wear it up here to, to give you a sense. Just be glad we're not doing Isaiah because God made Isaiah preach naked for a few years. And that's just a good thing because I don't want to get up here and have to do that. But these are the kinds of cringeworthy things God made prophets do. So today we're going to jump into a theme that we started two weeks ago when God made Jeremiah buy a field. Now we started with that, but we got sidetracked with some other things in that lesson. And so now I'm going to come back to it. And you might say to yourself, well, what is the big deal about buying a field? Well, we're going to explain that. But before I do, I shared last time about a purchase I made that I instantly regretted. It had to do with a vehicle. And uh, the moment I bought it, everything just went wrong with it. And at the end of the day, I just had to give it up. There was just no fixing it. And I just took a big hit on all the expenses that went into it. I thought it would be fun. At least it would be fun for me if I could hear if you'd be willing to share about a purchase you made at some point in your life that you instantly regretted. Has anyone ever here, anyone here ever bought something and almost instantly went, why did I buy this? Who would have the courage to just share briefly? Yes. I bought some vending machines once hoping that I was gonna become an entrepreneur. That was eight years ago and I've never placed them. I've never put candy in them. I don't even have the key. <laughs> so you bought some vending machines and it just never panned out. You were hoping to get a business going, never panned out. Thank you for sharing. Anyone else? I saw one other hand. Yes, over here. I wanted to fix it again, Tony. 
A Fiat, a fix it again, Tony. Yeah, yeah, I, I bought a found on the road dead. So yeah, I get it. And uh, never really got run and did it. No, no, it didn't. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. You gave it away, right? Gave it to someone else to fix it again, Tony, right? Yes, I appreciate that. Well, it's nice to know that I'm not the only person in the room that has bought something and instantly uh, regretted it. So let's jump into our lesson here. We're going to go to Jeremiah chapter 32. Before I do that, let's go ahead and pray. Father, it is so great to be together this morning. I do pray for your spirit to be with us. Help us to look richly and deeply into your word and, and see for us what you want us to hear today. God, I pray that we open our hearts up, that, that we're prepared now to receive the message that comes from you through your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. The army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. Now Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him there, saying, Why do you prophesy as you do? You say this is what the Lord says. I'm about to give this city into the hands of the king of Babylon. He will capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, will not escape the Babylonians, but will certainly be given into the hands of the king of Babylon, and will speak with him face to face and see him with his own eyes. He will take Zedekiah to Babylon, where he will remain until I deal with him, declares the Lord. If you fight against the Babylonians, you will not succeed. For those of you that have been in our series with Jeremiah from the beginning, I could have easily made that the subtitle. Instead of the branch of an almond tree, we could have just subtitled it, If you fight against the Babylonians, you will not succeed. That was pretty much Jeremiah's entire ministry for 40 years of life, was telling the people, the kingdom of Judah, stop trying to fight Babylon. You're going to lose, and if you fight, it's going to be even worse. Give it up. You know, give up the ghost. Surrender now. Just submit to the, the, the discipline of God and accept their yoke. But, of course, they never listened. And, and because Jeremiah preached this prophecy over and over and over, the different kings that he, pre that he served under had various reactions to him. In this case, Zedekiah, one of the, la the last king of Judah, really had a hard time with, with uh, Jeremiah's message because Jeremiah was basically saying, you're going to lose the battle and, and Babylon's going to take you away into captivity. And of course, any king doesn't like to hear that. So the date is somewhere around 587 BC. Jerusalem has been under siege for about 18 months. The armies of Babylon have surrounded the city. In about 12 more months, the city is going to fall. We know this. It happened historically. We have the records of it. Everything is Jer Jeremiah prophesied panned, out, prophesied panned out exactly as he said it would. And we learned in our last lesson that for the past 18 months, times were not very good for Jeremiah. He went through some very difficult times. He started out as a free man, able to move about the city. But then he was charged with desertion when he was trying to leave the city to go home and take care of some affairs. And he was thrown into a dungeon, and this dungeon was a pretty desperate place. After an extended period of time in the dungeon, he was taken out and brought back to the king, Zedekiah, and Zedekiah wanted to know if Jeremiah had a different word from the Lord, if he had changed his mind yet. Of course, Jeremiah, even in the face of him being thrown back into the dungeon, hung tight. He said, no, that's what God's word says. That's what I'm going to say. King got mad at him. Fortunately, didn't throw him back in the dungeon, but put him, on put him in arrest in the, the, the courtyard of the palace. 
Well, there were some other officials who didn't like that, and they wanted Jeremiah killed. So they went to the king and they said, hey, we got to get rid of this guy. He's not only a deserter, but he's a traitor. King said, do whatever you want. They threw him in a cistern. A cistern is like a big well. And it was dried up, but had mud on the bottom. They threw him in there. He sank up to whatever, his neck, his chest, whatever in the mud. And they left him there to starve to death. Fortunately, some friends found him. They pulled him out. They brought him back to the king. The king said, hey, God changed his mind yet? Jeremiah said, no. Again, holding to the word of God, even in the face of difficulty. And the king said, fine, threw him back in jail. But again, fortunately, put him on house arrest in the palace of the courtyard. That all happened in 18 months of the of this siege, the first 18 months of this siege of Babylon that had surrounded the city of Jerusalem. And now, during the middle of that, during that second uh, uh, captivity there or imprisonment in the courtyard, he gets a message from God. You know, Jeremiah is this amazing example that the faithful path isn't always the easiest path. Even when that path, and sometimes the faithful path, even leads to more trouble. And that's a lesson I think we all need to learn and remember. That, hey, okay, fine. Being a follower of of God isn't going to be easy. I think most of us can accept that, although sometimes we get surprised when those things happen. But I think more importantly, even though he followed God, that didn't make his path easier. Sometimes it led to even more troubles. Yet Jeremiah still stayed faithful. He's this incredible example of not just courage, but of obedience under fire. Verse 6, Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field at Anathoth, because as nearest relative it is your right and duty to buy it. Then just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the guard and said, buy my field at Anath in the territory of Benjamin, since it is your right to redeem it and possess it, buy it for yourself. I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So Jeremiah is under house arrest for the second time. He's in the courtyard and God gives him this vision that his cousin's going to come and want to sell him a field in the middle of being in prison and in the middle of this massive siege of the city of Jerusalem. Here comes his cousin with a deal. Got to make a deal. God says, hey, do it. So, of course, Jeremiah recognizes that this is of God. So he tells his cousin, let's go ahead and make the deal. You know, one of my favorite movies because I'm half Sicilian, is The Godfather. And there's this great scene in The Godfather. It's early in the movie. The Godfather is at his daughter's wedding. And the various people are coming to uh, congratulate The Godfather and have an audience with him. And one particular person comes and asks The Godfather for a favor. Now, in mafia culture and in Sicilian culture... When you ask for a favor, it usually has a string attached. Now, that string may never get pulled, but it's there nonetheless. You know, I think about God and giving Jeremiah this vision, and he's telling him, hey, your cousin's going to come and buy this field. 
And I kind of think of it as God putting his arm around Jeremiah and says, hey, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. Let's watch this clip from The Godfather. We'll bring the lights down. I think we got the sound ready. It's not so much later in the movie, we can bring the lights back up, that the Godfather does call on that person to do him a favor, and of course it's not a good favor, but the guy's got to go ahead and do it because he made this deal with the Godfather. I want you to think about this for a minute. Imagine if God came to you, put his arm around you and said, hey, I want to make you an offer you can't refuse. I have a deal. I want you to buy this piece of land. But this piece of land happens to be in 1917, pre-communist Russia, just before the communist overthrow of the country. Or this piece of land happens to be in Berlin in 1944, just before the firebombing campaign that utterly devastates the entire city. Or this, this purchase has to take place in 1986, just before or in 1979, just before Three Mile Island blew up, or in 1986, just before Chernobyl blew up, and you had to buy a house in that neighborhood. Not the kind of deal you'd like to make. And Jeremiah had been preaching for 40 years that Babylon was going to destroy the nation, the city, and all the surrounding lands, and he knew that this property that his cousin was trying to sell him was going to become worthless in about a year. And yet God said to Jeremiah, I want you to buy it anyways. What would you do? There are times in every believer's journey that God is going to come calling for a favor. He's going to ask you to do something, to go somewhere, to give up something that you wouldn't normally want to do. The question is, the one that you've got to ask yourself, all believers have got to ask ourselves, is will we do it even when we don't want to? I mean, the last thing on Jeremiah's mind He's in prison for crying out loud. The Babylonian army has surrounded the city. He knows it's going to end bad. He knows everybody's going to be deported. He knows that the, the whole countryside is going to be devastated. The last thing on his mind during this time has got to be making a deal in real estate. It just isn't going to be worth it. Yet when God asked him to do it, Jeremiah did it. You know, it's challenging to obey God. That's hard enough. But imagine obeying him in a difficult time when he has a difficult request. Let's read on. Verse 9. So I bought the field 
at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamal and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed and had it witnessed and weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the deed of purchase, sealed copied, containing the terms and condition, as well as the unsealed copy. And I gave this deed to Baruch, son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel and of the witnesses who had signed the deed and of all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of God. In their presence, I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Take these documents, both sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. So not only does Jeremiah do the deed and buy the field from his cousin, but he pays market value, 17 shekels of silver. Now, you know, people have tried to figure out what is that in real money? What is that in today's money? And there's estimates that go from 100,000 to 400,000. It doesn't really matter because we never really know. The point is, is that Jeremiah paid basically market value for the property. He didn't get it on a deal. It wasn't like, hey, this is uh, the fire sale because the fire is about to come in 12 months and you can buy the land on the cheap. No, no, he paid full price for the property. But not only does he pay full price, but he signs up the deeds, he has them witnessed, he has them copied. And then very curiously, he looks to his assistant, Baruch. Baruch is a new character in the book. We're going to talk more about him in a later message. But Jeremiah had an assistant, his name was Baruch. And he says, hey, take all the copies, the deed and all this material, put it in a jar and seal it up for safe keeping. Now, I don't think that this was all that cringeworthy of a thing to do. In fact, I bet you many people who owned land at this time were probably formalizing their documents and trying to store them in safe places. I mean, after all, the city was surrounded. There was an invading army. They wanted some way to keep their records. They didn't have banks back then. They didn't have the cloud, right? So they, the way you save things is you put it in a jar, you buried it somewhere, you put it somewhere, you hid it. And the idea was, was that, hey, if, if, if Babylon invasion fails, great, no big deal. But if they do succeed and we have to go into captivity for a time, maybe we'll return one day or maybe our children will return and we can dig up these things and we can prove, hey, we own this plot of land. That was probably going on throughout the siege of Jerusalem. So that wasn't so unusual that Jeremiah asked, did this and then asked Baruch to seal up the documents. What was unusual to me anyways, was that Jeremiah knew that he wasn't going to return. You see, God had given him the prophecy, and the prophecy was that Babylon would destroy the land, carry the people away into captivity. I don't know that Jeremiah thought he would survive. And if so, he would be carried into captivity most likely, and God said that that captivity would last three generations. So Jeremiah was never going to come back and see these documents again. Why witness them and why seal them up? Other than the fact that God told them to. More significantly, as far as we know, at the life of Jeremiah, he never married. So he had no children. There were no heirs who might come back to find the documents and restore their land. So why go through all the trouble? of writing the deeds, signing the documents, making sure there were witnesses, sealing them up in jars for safekeeping. Verse 16. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, son of Nari, I prayed to the Lord, 
Oh, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens, the earth, by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show love to thousands, but bring the punishment for the parents' sins into the laps of their children after them. Great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord Almighty, great are your purposes and mighty are your deeds. Your eyes are open to the ways of all mankind. You reward each person according to their conduct as their deeds deserve. You perform signs and wonders in Egypt. You've continued unto this day in Israel and all mankind and have gained the renown that is still yours. You brought your people Israel out of Egypt with signs and wonders by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror. You gave them this land. You swore to them, to their ancestors, a land flowing with milk and honey. They came in. They took possession of it. They did not obey you or follow your law. They did not do what you commanded them to do. So you brought all this disaster on them. See how the siege ramps are built up to take the city because of the sword, famine, and plague. The city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians who are attacking it. You said, what you said has happened as you now see and though the city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians, you, sovereign Lord, say to me, buy the field with silver and have the transaction witnessed? I mean, Jeremiah had the exact same questions. Why are you making me buy this field? And why do I have to sign the deed? And why seal it up? What is the point? I mean, it's a pretty cringeworthy request. I'm going to fork out whatever money I have and I'm going to buy a field that's going to be totally worthless and then I'm never going to see it and none of my heirs. Why, God? Why make me do this? So about 20 years ago, I was asked to go into the full-time ministry, a little over 20 years, my wife and I. And at the time, I was married happily, still am. Had one child, one on the way. Had a good job that I loved and I had no real reason to give it up. At the time, even though I was very involved in the church and I was serving constantly in, in lay leadership and I loved the church, there was problems brewing in the church and many of us at the time saw those problems coming. We knew that there were storm clouds brewing, that it wasn't going to be an easy road. The church wasn't perfect. There was no guarantee that changing careers and giving up my whole career path was going to work. Still isn't, as a matter of fact. What's more, I sat down with my dad and I said, hey, dad, what do you think? His words to me were, you're crazy. And in many ways, he was right. It's not been an easy journey. I would be lying to myself and I would be lying to you if I told you that it was easy. If I never had doubts about that decision. If I never wondered what would have happened if I had only just taken the blue pill. I think Jeremiah was feeling a lot of those feelings. Yeah. 40 years, God. I've done everything you asked. I'm an outcast. Nobody likes me. I'm the guy no one invites to the party. Because all I ever have to do is tell everybody, it's all going to burn. It's all going to burn. You're all going to die. I mean, that's all he ever got to do. He had to wear yokes. He had, to do all, he had to smash jars. He had to do all kinds of crazy. He had to buy fields that weren't worth anything. What 
are you doing? I mean, it's, it's, we're at the end, God. It's over. I'm trying to make arrangements. He tried to make arrangements to f- finalize his, his last will and testament or whatever, his final details. He gets arrested, thrown in a dungeon, then in a cistern. Oh, now buy this field. Why? Why? I love that we have the record of Jeremiah's prayer. I love the honesty in the prayer. He's a person. He lived, and he's a lot like you and I. Trying to do the right thing, but he had doubts. Don't ever believe anyone who tells you that they've never regretted a purchase or a decision or doubted even their own faith. Because if they tell you that, they're either lying to you or they've never really followed God somewhere that they didn't want to go or do something that they didn't want to do or give up something that they didn't want to let go of. Because real faith happens in the fire of doubt. That's where it's built. That's where it's forged. And that's what we have in this chapter 32 of Jeremiah, a record of his doubt and of his great faith. I hope that at least, if nothing else today, you, you connect. Because if you've been in the church any length of time, if you've been a follower of Jesus for any length of time, you know what this is like. And if you're fairly young and you're fairly new to the faith, you will know what this is like. And those of you who are very old and gray-haired, like John, who did a great job leading our, our message of shalom, he talked about a time in his life where he was at the end of himself with his own family, and he couldn't find peace, and he couldn't find... And what was God doing? God was taking him where he didn't want to go. And then he found shalom. He found faith. But doubt was there. Don't ever think that because you doubt, you're somehow failing at your faith. No, it's when you doubt and you continue in your faith and you continue to obey is when your faith becomes real. Verse 26, then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I'm about to give this city into the hands of the Babylonians and to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who will capture it. The Babylonians who are attacking the city will come in, set it on fire. They'll burn it down. Along all, with all the houses where all the people arouse my anger by burning incense on the roofs of Baal and by pouring out drink offerings other God. The people of Israel and Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. Indeed, the people of Israel have done nothing but arouse my anger with what their hands have made, declares the Lord. From the day it was built until now, this city has so aroused my anger and wrath that I must remove it from my sight. 
The people of Israel and Judah have provoked me by all the evil they have done. They, their kings and officials, their priests and prophets, the prophet of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, they turn their backs on me and not their faces, their backs to me and not their faces. Though I taught them again and again, they would not listen or respond to discipline. They set up their vile images in the house that bears my name and defiled it. They built high places for Baal in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to sacrifice their sons and daughters to Molech, though I never commanded, nor did it even enter my mind. They should do such a detestable thing and make Judah sin. Imagine that quiet time. There you are pouring out your doubt and your frustration. Why, God? Why? And God answers, let me tell you why. That would be one heck of a quiet time. That would be one heck of a moment with God. Let me tell you why. Because these people have sinned incredibly. He begins his answer to Jeremiah's question with, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. If God is truly God, then he must make good on his promises, both the good ones and the bad ones. And God told Israel since the beginning, if you go into the land and you do what's right, I'm going to bless you. But if you go into the land and you do what everybody else is doing, I'm going to curse you. Now, if God is God, he's got to honor that promise. And they did exactly that. And so God is cursing them. He's consequencing them for their actions. And Jeremiah is along for the ride. And many other faithful people who didn't do these things, but they're caught up in it because it was just, it was a pandemic, the sin that Israel was in. So God's judgment was inevitable their sin demanded it. But later in his response, he says to Jeremiah, is anything too hard for me? And there is the hope. Right. If and when, I shouldn't say if, when you find yourself in doubt and frustrated and trying to make sense of what's going on, you're just trying to be faithful, you're just trying to do the right thing, and man, things are going wrong and they're going from bad to worse and you find yourself doubting if and when in that moment, when that moment comes and it will to every one of us many times over. Remember, is there anything too hard for God? As impossible as the bright future, as impossible as a bright future for Israel may seem at this time, it was not outside the range of God's power he was telling Jeremiah it wasn't going to end in captivity to Babylon. Verse 36, you are saying about the city by the sword, famine, and plague, it will be given into the hands of the king of Babylon. But this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I will surely gather them from all the lands where I banished them in my furious anger and great wrath. I will bring them back to this place and let them live in safety. They will be my people. I will be their God. I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me and that all will then go well for them and for their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. I will inspire them to, do, to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. This is what the Lord says. I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will give them all the prosperity I promised them. 
Once more fields we bought in this land of which you say it is a desolate waste without people or animals for it has been given into the hands of the Babylonians. Fields we bought but will be bought for silver. Deeds will be signed, sealed and witnessed in the territory of Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem, in the towns of Judah and in the towns of the hill country of the western foothills and of the Negev because I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. Even though God's judgment was inevitable because of the sin of the people, it was not the end of God's plan for the people. And so he tells Jeremiah that, yes, Babylon's going to be victorious. Everything's going to get burnt down. It's all going to be destroyed. But one day he will bring the people back to the land. He will rebuild them like the $6 million man. He will make them better, stronger, and faster. They will once again be his people. By this, uh, but, but this time they will be single-hearted. They will fear him and he will prosper them. You know, history tells us that God did exactly that. After three generations of captivity into Babylon, Cyrus the Great, king of Persia, assumed control of Babylon and he issued a decree and allowed the people, the Jews, to return and resettle their homeland. But that wasn't the only promise that God had made them. He promised to give them a singleness of heart. What many people have found fascinating, many historians and, and religious scholars and theologians, is that it was during this time in captivity, those three generations, where the Israelites finally became monotheistic. Prior to this point, they were always worshiping idols. They'd see God and they'd go, oh my gosh, God's great. And then they'd run over here and build a golden calf. Or they would, God would do something amazing, and then they'd run over here and they'd put an idol up to the temple to some other god. They were notoriously uh, 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 prone to idol worship, to worshiping other gods. But this time in captivity beat that out of them, for lack of a better word. I mean, it was just beaten out of them. They had no temple. They had no place to worship. So what did they do? They started meeting in synagogues. This is where synagogues came from. Synagogues didn't exist before this because the people lived in the land. The temple was there. You just went to the temple and worshiped. But now you had synagogues because they had nowhere to worship. So these, these captives would, buy, would find each other and they would, they would live together in communities and then they would get a, a teacher or a rabbi around them and then he would teach them. And guess what happened over three generations? God pushed their tendency towards idolatry out of them. And the Jews remain monotheistic to this day. So when you are struggling and you are questioning, why did I do this? Why did I make that purchase? And you're finding yourself doubting your faith. Know this. God is doing something good in you. Right. He's trying to work something out in you. He's trying to give you something better for you. But you have to endure the captivity. You have to let it do its work on you. Too often, we want to get back in the matrix. It's not all that fun. This has gotten tiring. It's gone on too long, God. It's lasted a week, three hours, two days. A year, well, in this case, it lasted three generations, so that would include your whole life. But it lasts sometimes a long time, and we want to get plugged back into the matrix. 
We want to be cipher. Let me back in and I'm just going to go eat steak. And I know it's not steak, but I don't care because I'm just going to think it is and I'm going to enjoy my life and die. Okay, do that. So what I'm referencing for the younger kids is a movie called The Matrix. <laughs> Came out a while ago. It's a really cool movie. People my age really loved it. Watch it one day. You can look it up. It's probably on Netflix. There was a character named Cypher. He was the bad guy in the movie, one of them. And, you know, so it was really cool. But anyways, that was the blue pill reference. You get it, right? Easter eggs. I'm giving you all these Easter eggs. Spoiler, 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 spoiler alert. Awesome. Is it for me? God is calling. Gotta love it when your phone rings at the quiet moment in the middle of the message. Like, <laughs> Not only did he make them monotheistic, but he did restore them to their land. They did rebuild the city. They did rebuild the temple. And ever since that time, they have more or less, it hasn't been a perfect road, but they have more or less prospered. And Israel stands to this day as a nation in the land. It was gone for a long time, but it did get restored. It did come back. And God followed through on his promise. He made them single-minded and he gave them back the land. God has all kinds of promises for you and I. And he always makes good on them. Even when, there no, when, when you see no hope, as, Log, as, as uh, Logan said last week, even when you only see a dead end in front of you, God knows the road map. He knows where all the streets are going, and he knows how he's getting you to where you need to be. So you've got to ask this question, what does this have to do with Jeremiah? Why make him sign these deeds and have people witness them and then seal them up for safekeeping? They're not going to do him any good, and they didn't. He never got any land out of this. They were purely symbolic. God wanted people to see his prophet by land. and sign those deeds and seal them up as if it was his and he was going to get it back. Because even though he wasn't ever going to see it, nor of any of his offspring were because he had none, three generations later, they were going to re see that renewed. And he wanted to leave the reminder in their minds. He wanted that story to be told for all Israel to know, we will come back. We will be restored He wanted Jeremiah to be that example of incredible faith and obedience in a very dark time. It's amazing to me that Jeremiah did this because there was no benefit to him. You know, we have people in our lives, we call it our oikos, the, the people that we do life with, our household, the people we interact with on a daily basis, the people who know us the best. And we have to be like Jeremiah to them. 
They have to see us be faithful through difficult times. They have to see us stay true to God's promises and God's word and be obedient to him even when things don't go right because they need an example like the Israelites needed Jeremiah. They need you to be the example of faith and obedience. God wants people to know that their story is not over. That one day he's going to restore them. And he wants people to know that today as well. He wanted Israel to know that, and he wants the people we live and interact with on a daily basis to know that as well. Heck, he wants you to know it too. So whatever it is you've gone through or are going through or will go through, Remember that God always wants to end it with a story of redemption. That's why God told Jeremiah to buy a worthless field and record it and seal up the documents and put them in a jar for safekeeping. Because his promises are real. We're going to take communion in just a minute. It's a time to remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it's also a time to be reminded that our story is not over. Like the Israelites, God wants to restore us to a land flowing with milk and honey. He wants to restore those who have remained faithful and obedient to Him even during the most difficult of times. At Simi Church, we believe the Bible is the best source of truth in our world today. In it, we learn that Jesus is Lord, that He lived a sinless life, died on a cross, and rose to life again. It is in this belief that we baptize repentant people in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and to receive the Holy Spirit. We are a member-supported church by people like me, you can give today in the baskets or online, seemechurch.org, or you can text your offering to See Me Church at 77977. I'm going to say a prayer, and afterwards, communion will be available to you on the tables to my right. You can leave your offering there in the baskets if you like. And if you don't want to get up, you just want to sit in your seat, just raise your hand, and Usher will bring communion to you. Let's go to God in prayer, and at this time, commune with Him. Father, thank you so much for such an incredible story of suffering, of obedience, and of redemption. It was Jeremiah's story, it was Israel's story, and it's our story today. Thank you for being the God who redeems us even when we aren't redeemable. Thank you for your son Jesus who died on the cross, who gave himself up for us that this may be possible, and I pray that we renew our covenant with him at this time each and every one of us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. You can take communion.